While you're being seated this morning, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them on or to open them up with me to the Gospel of Luke. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the back of the pew in front of you. It's on page 882 in our pew Bibles. And the title of today's sermon is The Difficulty of Following Jesus. The Difficulty of Following Jesus in our text, as I've already read, is Luke chapter 22. And we're going to be looking at verses 54 all the way down through verse 65. And I want you to think about the song we just sang. I will trust you, Jesus, with my life. I want you to think about that song and what you just said in relationship to the story I'm about to tell you. Because there's a story told about a tightrope professional who had planned an event where he was going to tightrope across two tall buildings 50 stories high. It's about 500, roughly 500 plus feet. And a large crowd had actually gathered on the day of the event at the top of the building where he was going to tightrope across and back. And it was a lot of anticipation, a lot of coverage, a lot of media. It was just a lot of hype around this event. And he took his balancing pole and he started out across the tightrope and made it across with ease and come back. And everybody went to cheering and it was just kind of a very energetic crowd and very electric. And he said, who thinks I can do it without my balancing pole? And they all just went to cheering. And so he walked across and back, no problem at all. He said, who thinks I can do it blindfolded? And everybody's cheering, and so he puts a blindfold on, he walks across the cable and back with ease. He takes a wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, and he says, who thinks I can push this wheelbarrow across? And everybody's just, at this time, it's just getting hyped up, you know, everybody's excited. And he walks this wheelbarrow across the tightrope and then back, and Then he said, who thinks that I can push somebody in the wheelbarrow across the rope and back? And he's proven himself. They are just excited. They think that this is the best thing ever. And everybody's just cheering and yelling. And he said, you guys are amazing. He said, I just need a volunteer. (laughs) Dead silent. Nobody budging. Nobody volunteering because they believed he could do it just not with their life on the line you see this is very relatable to what I'm going to be sharing today and the song we just sang I would trust you Jesus with my life because you see it's easy to trust in somebody at a distance it's easy to in the story I just shared with you, say, yeah, I believe you can do it. I just don't believe you're going to do it with me. It's easy at a distance to say, I will trust you, Jesus, with my life. But when it comes down to actually having to put our money where our mouth is, that's when we tend to retreat. We shrink back. And this is what we see in our text today, because if you remember... 
Peter is boasting about following Jesus. You remember? He said, I'm willing to go to prison with you. I'm willing to die for you. But when Peter is put in that situation where he has has a decision to make, he retreats, he shrinks back. Instead of walking the line, instead of getting in the wheelbarrow, he said, no thanks, I'll pass. In fact, Simon Peter, as we have been seeing, and I want to draw this point of attention out to you, Luke is recording a lot of Peter's failures. He's showing us that Peter has a big mouth. In fact, the only time it seems like up to this point that Peter opens his mouth is to change feet. He is just saying things, he's writing checks that he is with his mouth that he can't cash. And so Peter fails miserably. But God is actually using his failure to show him mercy, to show him forgiveness, and to continue showing Peter that God is sovereign over all things and that God is compassionate. What we see is Peter does fail miserably, but God is not finished with Peter. He still has a plan and a purpose for Peter's life. And I love this because what it teaches us and what it shows us is no matter how badly a believer may fail, God is faithful. God is not finished. Just because you fail doesn't mean that God has. Just because you and I may have moments where we're not faithful doesn't mean that God's not faithful. The big question that I've already answered a few weeks ago, I just feel like it's necessary that we bring it back up. The big question is, why did Peter fail? And I think there are several reasons. I think there are several instances in his life where he had opportunities. But one thing we see, there's actually a few things we're going to look at, but one thing that we see here, starting off with, is that Peter was boasting in himself when he should have been depending on God. In Luke chapter 22, verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go to both prison with you and to death. Now this was Peter boasting in himself. This was uh, Peter putting confidence in the flesh and not trusting in God. Uh, We also see that Peter was sleeping to escape his sorrow when he should have been praying to find strength. We remember in the garden in Luke chapter 22, there around the verse 45 mark where Jesus had told them to sit at a certain area and I want you to pray. I'm I'm going to go over here and pray alone. But I want you disciples, you who claim to belong to me, I want you to pray that you will be able to withstand the temptation. But when Jesus came back from prayer, we see in verse 45, He was praying, He came back from prayer, and He came to His disciples and He found them sleeping for sorrow. They'd been hearing the things that Jesus said, 
and it made them sad. And instead of praying to find strength, they went to sleep to escape sorrow. I think a lot of people do that. I think a lot of us are guilty of that. I just want to, I want to go to sleep and I want to forget about everything. Why are we not praying to find strength? We would rather sleep to get away from our sorrow. Another thing we see in Peter's life is Peter was fighting his enemies when he should have been loving his enemies. We find out in the other Gospels that it was Peter who was with Christ that night that had the sword. And Luke chapter 22, 49-50 though tells us that when one of those who were around Jesus saw what would follow, they saw the Roman soldiers. They had the high priests and their servants were with them. Peter said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And, and one of them struck, or one of the disciples said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them, which we know to be Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So what we are seeing with all of this is Luke is showing us that there's a, a great emphasis on Peter's failures. But we need to understand that the reason that he's showing us these things is to show us that Peter's failures are not final. It doesn't stop with his failures. It, it continues to go on. Failure is often God's schoolmaster, right? How many of you have heard this? We learn from our mistakes. We do, don't we? It's a schoolmaster. Failures are part of life. We try so hard not to fail. And I think that we should, but I think we should also, as believers especially, understand that there is a tremendous amount of freedom in our failures because of the sovereignty of God to use those things in our life to strengthen us, to make us wiser, to make us better. Adrian Rogers says, failure doesn't need to be a hitching post to tie us to the past. Failure can be a guidepost to lead us into the future. So many Christians, I think, hitch themselves to their failures, and that's where they live. Instead of understanding that God is using those failures to do something with them in our life. And so we understand that as we look at this story and as we get into this context, that this is a very dark night in Peter's life. A night that he probably regretted. A night that he, he may even had at one point said, I wish I could go back and do that night over again. But what Peter is going to learn is that even though this was a dark night, the mercies of God are new every morning. There's a dawning of a new day. So let me give us a little bit of background because we're introduced, as I read earlier, some of the first people, the key people we see in this in the sermon this morning are the chief priests, the high priests. Annas, who was the father-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law, are the ringleaders of the other priests and what's going on. But what I want you to primarily hear this morning is just one simple point about the high priests, and that is the fact that they were very powerful. They were very powerful. And let me explain why. First, they were powerful because of their religious position. They were of the Levitical priesthood. They were to be revered and respected. The Jews had been raised that out of all the people in Israel, the ones that you revere and respect the most are the high priests. 
These are the leaders. These are the stewards of the Word of God. These are the ones who carry out the things of God. So these Jewish children are taught from birth that they don't disrespect the high priest. And so just by default, inherently, they had received a tremendous amount of power among the people. Secondly, they were powerful because of the temple and temple worship. Every Jew knew the temple. But what they didn't understand, especially the newer generations, was that so much had changed in the temple. What did God say? My temple shall be called a house of what? Prayer. But what did the high priests do? They turned it into a house of commerce. And so what happened over the years is they learned through their greed and through their wickedness that they could extort religion. They prostituted the things of God. And they made the temple worship into a place of making money. And through that, they developed a a very powerful deception over the people. But they used the temple as a means of greed and to get what they wanted. They manipulated religion to trap the minds of the people. So they were religion or they were powerful by default just simply because of the family they were born into and who they were, who they uh, were as high priests. They were powerful because they had changed the temple worship from a house of prayer into a den of thieves. But thirdly, they were powerful because of politics. They held a political position with the Romans. Because Rome understood something about the Jews. Jews were a lot of people. You're talking millions and millions of Jews. And the Romans wanted the Jews. They used the Jews. They they made money off of the Jews. But they needed to control the Jews. So how do you control the Jews? You go to the top. And if you can pay off the top, you pay off the priests. You use the temple. You know how they're using the temple. And so what they're doing is they're sliding money under the table to the priests. And in fact, you see here, the priests are keeping it in the family. Annas is the high priest. He's the father-in-law. And then you have Caiaphas coming in under him as the son-in-law. They're keeping it in the family. Here's a way to stay powerful. Here's a way to stay rich. And so when we put all of this together, it helps us understand why is it that they're having a trial in the house of the high priests? How are they bringing Jesus into a trial, a tribunal that they're having there in Caiaphas and Annas' house? Well, when you understand their power, you understand that they were very rich. They would have had a very large house. In fact, we understand through history, through archaeology, that the high priest's house were the biggest, were the largest houses in their community. And they were set up with a courtyard. So you had this square house, you had a gate where you would enter into. When you entered into the gate, you're actually entering the house. And you have this massive courtyard where public, the public could actually just walk in and as legal issues were taking place, the people could sit in the courtyard and observe and listen to what was going on. 
This helps us understand some key details about what's going on with Peter because you're going to find out in a minute that him and Jesus see each other. So we don't need to have the idea that Peter is out here and they've got a closed door trial. No, this is open. They want it to be open. Because they want to publicly humiliate and criminalize Christ. And so here they are. There's a big courtyard and it's within earshot and eyesight eyeshot of where Christ is being tried. And we see what is taking place. They are blindfolding Christ. And they're, 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 here's what they're doing. They're trying to manipulate the people by exposing what they believe to be a fallacy with Christ. They're blindfolding him. Somebody goes over and whacks him in the face and say, if you're really who you say you are, tell us who hit you. So in one sense, they're expressing vitriol and hatred toward Christ. And they're using this mockery at his expense to show others, see, he's a phony, he's a fake. And then it says, it says they say all other things about him. What they're doing is they're coming in with other people giving false reports and lying. And so Peter is in the courtyard. He sees what is happening. And instead of standing up with Jesus, he sits down with the others. So instead of standing up, he's sitting down. Peter is taking a seat instead of taking a stand. Look at what it says in verse 54 through 55. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's home. And Peter was following where? at a distance. Let me tell you something, it's dangerous to follow at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Folks, this is within hours of boasting. I'm willing to go to prison with you. I'm willing to be arrested with you. That's how much I love you, Lord. I'm willing to die for you. I trust you with my life. We sang that song, remember? That's what Peter was doing. He was boasting. And now, what is he doing? He's warming his hands by a fire made by the hands of those who hate Christ. Oh, how far he had fallen already. At a distance he's following, right? Then he's sitting around this fire. Now you got to remember, Peter is showing us, or Luke is showing us two things, right? You have the trial going on over here with Christ. And then he's paying attention to, to, to Peter. And he's showing us in his word, God's word. He's, these are inspired words. God wants us to see some things. And so here we see as Peter's warming his hands by the fire, he's identified with Christ by these people that are sitting around the fire with him. And what you're going to see is Peter is concerned mainly about not getting arrested and not dying. The very things that he said that he was willing to do, now he's retreating from those words. So look at what it says. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man, 
This man right here, he was with Jesus. But Peter denied it and he said, woman, I do not know that man. I do not know him. Don't identify me with him. Denying Jesus instead of denying self. What has Christ called us to do? To deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. And what we see Peter doing is following at a distance. And now when he is identified with Christ, he says, no, I'm not. I don't know that man. I don't know who that is. You've got me mixed up with somebody else. Same lips said hours earlier, I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to be arrested and I'm ready to die die with you. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you you also are one of these disciples. You're You're one of these disciples that were with Christ. But Peter said, man, I am not. There's two. Peter's concerned primarily with self-preservation than self-sacrifice. You see what this is showing us? Peter says a lot of things. But at the end of the day, this is number one. Self is number one. I'll, I'll, I'll come to church and I'll say all of these great things about Jesus and I'll even sing songs. But at the end of the day, right here, this is number one. You see, as we look at Peter, really what we're doing is we're looking into a mirror and we see a reflection that's very similar. And it should jostle us a bit not to just read these things at a distance ourselves, but bring ourselves very close and very near I'm not talking about reading ourselves into the text, but allowing the text to show us who we are. Then notice what it says, after an interval of about an hour. Think about this. This is going on. Jesus is being slapped, beat, lied to, or lied about. And all of this is taking place for a period of hours. Peter has denied him once. Peter's denied him twice. And now... There's been about an hour span between the second denial and the third one. And I thought about this week, man, what an hour that must have been for Peter. Because if you think about it, Peter's probably sitting there seeing all this trial, hearing the things that are going on, watching what's happening to the one who he just said, I'm willing to go to prison with you. I'm willing to die with you. And he must be thinking, "I'm, I'm just... A little bit of sanctified imagination here, right? Man, what a coward you are. But I tell you this, if anybody asks me once again, if they say it one more time, this time I'm going to stand up. This time I'm going to make good on my word. And then he gets the opportunity. After about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly (laughs) this man, I know for certain this man was with Jesus. He has to be because he's a Galilean. Now, by the way, how would he have known that? Well, they're probably having some conversation. And let me just say it. If you are talking with somebody from another part of the country and they're talking to you, they're going to say, you're from Mississippi, aren't you? (laughs) 
He knows that this man is a Galilean from the way he's carrying himself, talking. And so he's identifying he must be one of the disciples. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. I think in this moment, just as we are here envisioning everything going on in our minds, Peter's learning a lot about himself. And it needs to be self-reflection for us as well. But let me just say some things that I believe that Peter's learning about himself. Number one, he's learning he's a lot weaker than he thinks he is. That's one thing. He's learning it's easy to say something than it is to do something. And he's learning that living for Jesus is not for wimps. Living for Jesus is not for cowards. I have heard my whole life those who like to antagonize Christians, accuse Christians of going after Christ or Christianity as a crutch. One of the most difficult things you will ever do is follow Christ. It's not easy. And any church, any pastor, any religion that says it is doesn't know their scripture. They don't know their Bible. Peter is learning following Jesus is not for whims. But more than learning about himself, remember, there's two pictures. You have Peter, but then there's Jesus. And remember at the beginning of this series through Luke, I said there's three things that Luke's writing this gospel for. Number one, he's writing to tell us who Jesus Christ is. Secondly, he's writing the Gospel of Luke so that we can learn how to follow Christ. And thirdly, he's writing this letter so we can learn how to have confidence in him. It's really about learning about Christ. And so there's some things that Peter is learning about Christ as well as himself and some extremely valuable lessons for us this morning about Christ. And number one, first we see that he's learning that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over the universe, over the world, over creation. Notice what it says in verse 60, the latter part there in our text. It says, and immediately as Peter denies Jesus the third time, it says immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Roosters in the, uh, we don't hear roosters a lot around here. I don't, some of you might have a rooster, you know, but I've been to other countries and roosters are everywhere in certain countries. When we were in Africa, roosters just run around all over the place. And they are like clocks. And typically they'll crow around midnight and then around five in the morning. But there's a space there where you're just not used to hearing anything. A span of silence. And, and so here we see that there were probably chickens in this courtyard. They were much like many places in the east. And it may not seem like a big deal for us this morning that a rooster crowed. But the emphasis is here, here is not that a rooster crowed. It's when he crowed. And this was a miracle. 
What we see here happening is at the very precise moment that Jesus said the rooster would crow, the rooster crowed. And as we're reading this narrative and as we're learning these truths about the life of Peter, we don't need to fail to recognize what this is teaching about Jesus. Jesus is in control because this rooster crowed. When Jesus said he would crow, it shows us that Jesus is in control of the whole narrative. He's controlling the events that are taking place. Listen to this verse in Psalm 8. It says, you have given him, God, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his. These are, these are verses predicting, reaching out toward the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come, Jesus. And you had given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. In other words, they are all under the authority of Christ. Every one of them. And when you read the gospel, some things we've already seen, is we see that Jesus at one time actually receives a coin from the mouth of a fish to be able to pay taxes. We see that Jesus rode on a donkey that was unbroken. We see that Jesus calls the disciples who had fished all night long and didn't catch anything when Jesus told them where to put the, the net down, they drew up so many fish that the nets began to break, their boats began to sink. And here we see Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and after that third time, you're going to hear a rooster crow. Because God is controlling that rooster, He's controlling the narrative, He's controlling the events. And what Jesus, Peter is doing is he's learning that Jesus not only knows what's going to happen, but he is literally controlling what is going to happen. Let me say something that will stir you a little bit. Peter's, failure are the direct, Peter's failures are the direct product of Jesus' permission. God is allowing Peter to fail. Now, here's how we think. We think, man, if God is in control... He could have done something to prevent Peter from failing. He could have told Peter what was going to happen. Which, by the way, he warned him. <laughs> you need to be praying instead of sleeping. He was warning him. But Jesus, I believe, is doing something better than preventing Peter from failing. He's teaching Peter that no matter what happens in life, God is in control. What's better than God preventing things from bad things from happening in our lives is showing us that He is using things in our life to conform us and to mold us and to shape us into the very image of Christ. That's what Romans 8, 28-29 says. That all things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Which means then that no matter what bad thing comes in my life, as a believer, as one who is submitted to God, I know that God is going to do something with that. Failure isn't final. And he's, Peter's having to learn this lesson. God is using Peter's failure to move him towards the purpose that God has for his life. You see, Peter has no idea why, what is happening in his life that day. But Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He had already told him, 
Satan's, demand, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. He's coming after you. He's given Peter these things, but he's also giving him enough room to fail. Because God is going to use that. What a blessing it is to know that no matter what happens, even when it seems like your prayers may go unanswered or life is out of control, that God is in control. And we may not know what is going on. We may not understand why I'm having to deal with this disease or why I'm having to go through this painful relationship issue or this breakaway, whatever it might be. God is faithful. And He's using negative and bad events in our lives to move us toward His purposes. Luke is, by the way, the only gospel writer who records this next part. I have it underlined for emphasis, but the emphasis is mine. <clears throat> it says in verse 60, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You get that scene in your mind, and you'll just about lose it. Peter's sitting there denying Christ. Jesus is over here being beaten laughed at, mocked, and lied against. And they see each other. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. And you see that immediately. That rooster crows. Remember the courtyard. They're warming their hands by fire. It's a cool night. Jesus is over there. They're seeing what's going on. They're hearing everything happen. And all of a sudden, when that rooster crows, Christ takes His attention off of His pain and suffering. And He turns and looks. And their eyes meet. And Peter knew. He remembered what had happened. Man, isn't that an amazing thing? But Peter's learning something here. You see, not only is God sovereign and in control over the narrative, the narrative of our lives, He's also sympathetic. He is the sympathetic Savior of our lives. You see, as Jesus is being accused and being beaten, as He's on His way to the cross, at the very moment the rooster crows, Jesus in all of his agony, takes a moment to turn and look at, at Peter. And you need to understand something. This isn't a look of disappointment because Jesus already knew what was going to happen. Do you know what looks of disappointment are on, on, on the faces of parents? It's shock. We didn't know that was coming. Jesus knew what was coming. And so when he looked at Peter, he's not disappointed. It's a look of love. It's a look of love. It's a look of grace. It's a look of compassion. You see, Jesus had not only told Peter of his failure, He said, I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you. I've prayed for the moment. When you enter into the darkest moment of that night, I've prayed for you. Did you know what kind of prayer that was? I've prayed for you. Peter knows in that instant 
that no matter what he does, Jesus loves him. He knows no matter how many times he fails, Jesus loves me. Because he sees the Word seeing him and affirming him. Peter knows that the Lord has prayed for him. And even though he's unfaithful to Jesus, he knows that Jesus is always going to be faithful to him. Let me tell you something wonderful. Jesus doesn't change us so He can love us. He loves us so He can change us. That's what His love does. It changes us. We are positively changed. Some people have this thing about God where they they think that God's like this you know, this zapper that just, you know, they're, they're living in, in absolute fear and that's what motivates change in their life as if, well, if I, don't, if I don't go to church, if I don't do something for God, I'm going to go to hell. What a negative way to think of God. I don't love God that way. It's not a negative love. It's a positive love. It's compassion. Because He, he loves us because He knows who we are. You know how most people love you? They love you for what they don't know about you. And God knows everything about you. He knows your thoughts that nobody else knows and loves in spite of that. That's the amazing compassion and love of God. You see, when you belong to God, no matter what you have done, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God loved Peter, because this is the big thing you hear. God, God loves you for the way you are. But here's the thing. God does love you the way you are, but God loves you too much to leave you that way. Amen? He loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And so because of that, because of that love, He won't allow us to stay weak and fragile and frail in our faith or faithlessness to Christ. Peter needed to fail. What a blessing this failure was in Peter's life. We would never know the bold Peter who preached in uh, Acts chapter 2 or the one who wrote First and Second Peter. We would never know that Peter if it wasn't for this failure. That failure needed to happen because he learned the love and faithfulness of Christ. And it was this moment that was a turning point for Peter. When we are under the love of God, we need to know that just because we cannot see God working, it doesn't mean that God is not working. God is exercising His sympathetic compassion toward us even when we think that life is falling apart. And it's through the sovereign control and the sympathetic compassion of Christ that Peter gains a steadfast commitment to Jesus. You see, there's a direct contrast here between Peter and Judas. You ever thought of that? You ever seen the contrast before? Judas had just, Judas is with the betrayers. He's with the other side. And, and there's a direct contrast here between Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial. And here's the difference Judas was never a believer. Jesus said, I knew from the beginning the disciple who would never believe. I knew all along that I had chosen a man who was an unbeliever, who would never be a believer, 
That was my sovereign choice to accomplish my purposes. I did that. That was my sovereign choice. Peter was different because Peter was a believer. And in this moment of faithlessness, God remained faithful. You see, when Judas was unfaithful, God didn't remain faithful because there was nothing to be faithful to. Right? There's a difference. I love this in 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. It says, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If you've died to yourself, you will live with Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. But listen to this. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Judas had denied Christ because he never believed. Peter denied Christ because he was too weak to follow Him in that moment. Peter was faithless in that moment, but God remained faithful to him. You see... Satan was sifting Peter like wheat, just like he had demanded. I want to sift him like wheat. And what he's thinking, I believe, in his mind, because Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's thinking, I'm going to do to Peter what I did to Judas. But he didn't realize that Jesus was praying for Peter. Peter was being torn down. But Jesus was using the same event to build him up. Satan was sifting him, but Jesus was strengthening him. And Peter ran out bitter, bitterly broken, weeping over his failure. You see, Jesus isn't finished with Peter. Listen to this. The crowing of the rooster was the end of a bitter night and the dawning of a new day. What a blessing that was that God gave to His disciple. That no matter all of the heartaches and tears you face, Jesus is still in control. No matter how you have failed, Jesus is still compassionate. No matter your disobedience, Jesus' commitment is still towards you, and He will see you through. That is true for every believer in Christ. We will all fail. I will fail. I have failed. I've been very transparent with you, brothers and sisters, about my humanity. We will all fail, but we need to remember that some of those darkest nights can be some of the brightest mornings. Lamentations 3.22 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great, say it church, great is your faithfulness. I think it's worth mentioning, and I think you should notice this, all this focus is on Peter's failure. But guess who's not even there? There were other disciples. Where are they at? They're gone. They ran off. But we also see God's faithful to bring them back too. Where are they at? I, I, you know, I thought about that. And I'm thinking, why is the other disciples not even there? I think it's there to point a question at us today. Which one are you? The one that's trying to follow and failing? 
or you just have given up altogether. God's faithful. And I just want you to hear that. God is faithful. Jesus is faithful to all of His disciples because we're going to see they all return and they follow Him to their death. They will never deny Him after this point. They still mess up, but they will follow Him to their death. That's a testimony of, their, of God's faithfulness, not theirs. So, this sermon, I believe, is perhaps that to some of us this morning. Maybe this is God's faithfulness to you to remind you of who He is. That He's in control. That He's compassionate. And also to be reminded that we don't follow God from a negative motivation. We follow Him from the love that He has toward us. And that's a valuable thing for us to hear. So maybe this sermon is just asking you to get in the wheelbarrow and let God push you. Let God drive you. Let God lead you. And let God fulfill His purposes for your life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the opportunity to preach. Your faithfulness to Your church is to provide preachers who care more about Your Word than their self, their own gain. Lord, I pray that You would keep me humble and safe and protected from my own pride, my own flesh. And all of us here, Lord, help us to deny ourselves, to deny our flesh, and to follow You. Help us to know that following You, Lord, means something. Not just being spectators at a ball game, but being on the field. Being in it. Help us not to be followers at a distance. Help us not to sit down when we need to be standing up. Help us to listen. Help us to love our enemies. God, be with us. Help us to put our hope, our faith, our trust, our whole lives in you. And I pray these things for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name. Amen.